You don't know the first thing about me, pal. Look what happened because of what you did, what it led to. There were riots out there. Two policemen are in critical condition. You're <laughs> laughing. You're laughing. Someone was killed today because of what you did. I know. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross I think a mentally ill loner with a it. society that abandons him and treats him like trash. Call the police, I'll Gene. tell you what you get. Call the police. You get what you fucking deserve. Though your heart is open, smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by if you smile. Welcome, 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 welcome to Best Film Ever, the podcast where we take a look at a film of the week and try to decide between us, is it indeed the best film ever? My name is Ian. My name is Liam. And we're joined here with two extra guests today. Who do we have today? We have... My name's Ellie. And I'm Georgia. Hey! And we are here uh, around the virtual digital roundtable as we continue to comply with all government instruction on uh, the coronavirus and social distancing and all those fun words that we didn't know what they meant in 2019. And by... It's barely April and I'm tired of them all myself. How about you guys? Yeah. Well, at least we've got some new words to add to our vocabulary. We, Let's try and look on the bright side. Do some new words to add to the vocabulary. Uh, I don't know. I mean, how are we all doing? I had a bit of a wobble, I think, yesterday. Uh, it's it's a bit hard. I mean, there's all the jokes about, you know, we're just asking to stay at home and, and watch Netflix. And that's true. And it's nothing compared to what people did in the wars. But during wartime, people were still allowed, if they were here, they were still allowed to go outside. Yeah. So it's it's difficult. I'm not saying that we have it harder, far, far, far from it. But I am saying that um, it, it is difficult. It's a totally different kind of difficult, isn't it? And it's something that we've never seen before, either on a personal level or, you know, globally ever. So I think we'll learn a lot of, I don't really want to say lessons from it, but we'll, I think we'll pick up a lot of resilience and the world might be quite different afterwards. What about you? I also think that as human beings, we're quite social people. So to be isolated and at home is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Some of us anyway. (laughs) Sorry? Some of us are sociable people anyway. Yeah, to yeah. some people, if you're the kind of person who sits at home and just devours Netflix or Amazon anyway, I mean, this is like your dream come true. Yeah, or play games or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just like, you know, this is kind of what I do anyway. But I think, I mean, the four of us, we're all involved in amateur dramatics and putting on plays and musicals and things like that. And that's in itself speaks to people who work best around other people and also people who get their enjoyment from interacting both with other people who you're involved with production with, but also with an audience. And something like this kind of takes all that stuff or a large part of that stuff away. So we have to get creative instead and do things like this where we sit around and we uh, watch a film and then we talk about it, which is good. And it has its genesis, if you will, in that I don't know what it was, uh, 15 months ago, 16 months ago now. I uh, bought Liam a poster for Christmas that had the top 100 films of all time. And we decided we were going to work our way through that poster. And Liam, I counted, we got eight films down before we decided to reset for the podcast. So we got through through eight and then we decided we should be documenting this. And there's some films I'm looking forward, Liam, to going back and watching again for the podcast. 
and there's some films that I <laughs> I really I, I I I could wait a bit before we go back and look over yeah. the podcast a bit like forever. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to do it eventually, but uh, we are we, we've done four episodes. This is episode number five, and this is the first time we're going off the poster. Actually, we're venturing into. Uh, into areas new which is which is good which is fine because last week we did the dark knight and if you can't find that please do go ahead look up best film ever on whatever reputable podcatcher you have at your disposal we're on all the major ones so if you found this one you've probably found that one so where you found this one go back into the back catalog look up the dark knight it was a a good one but the question at the end of it which i held back from saying was is this the best joker performance ever and therefore, we made the decision to go ahead and do Joker. So Joker was the film of the week. I'm ho- so are we all looking forward to reviewing Joker today? Yeah. Um, mm. Oh, interesting. Had we all seen it before? I'd seen it before. I, yeah, I had to. Yeah, okay. yeah I, I saw it with Ian. So Georgia? Yeah. No, I hadn't seen it before now. So, oh, that's um, interesting. Okay. It was first time viewing for me. It is good when someone's seen it and someone hasn't. It's kind of nice to get those sort of first reflections versus second. Because I think this is the kind of film where multiple viewings do change certain things for you, I think. I found it. They have done. I found it really interesting watching it a second time, um, especially because obviously it wasn't that long ago that we watched it for the first time around because it's a fairly new film. Um, so my memory of it initially is still fairly fresh. So I was just picking up all sorts of different things watching it a second time around, like the cinematography and things that isn't really something I normally okay. notice to that much of a degree. Excellent. So let's just do a little bit of an intro here, a little bit of context corner. Um, Joker was written and directed by Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips, who also did the Hangover trilogy of movies. Oh, God. But if you look at that and then think, this guy's going to create like this auteur um, super sort of trademarky kind of film that was this dark I, I wouldn't have believed it um i didn't think, i don't think anybody would have seen it coming because as soon as they talked about it everybody was trashing it from day one it was how good and how it's going to be this and, and, and this you know, is, no one's going to watch it and this is part of the thing because the legacy of heath ledger's joker is so big and when they tried to do it with Suicide Squad and Jared Leto did it, it was panned so terribly by critics and audiences that we thought you'd be an idiot to try and do an indicative Joker movie that was just Joker. And then they announced they're doing this and they were going to give the Joker a backstory and the Joker never gets a backstory. So there was all this backlash from the fanboys of DC Comics going, it's against the very purpose of the character and so, I mean, the buzz was present on this one. I heard the buzz a good year before the film came out. Yeah, same. Yeah. Because, Liam, you happen to work. One of your gigs is that you are an owner of a record shop. I am. Retro, retro Records retro. and Toys. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> for, all, for all your retro needs. And you have a comic sort of uh, station within that. Part of a toy side is, is comic books, is it not? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I remember we're having conversations about comic book movies, and we see a lot of comic book movies together. Uh, in case somebody doesn't know, we may as well give them the premise, uh, is that I, I teach film studies for a, a living, and I probably come at it from a bit more of a film studies academic perspective. And Liam, you own a record shop and are involved in pop culture every day of your life, and yet we find ourselves at the movies together having these conversations. 
So it is quite interesting to see kind of how we, we, we take different sides of it. And so we were both aware that Batman, well, not Batman, but the Joker film here, Joker, was, was coming out. And we were going, I don't know how they're going to pull that one off. That seems like a weird one, especially when Joaquin Phoenix's name came up. Because he's a bit of an oddball himself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially in this book. I, yeah. I remember hearing the buzz and thinking this this could be quite good. Oh, really? Because I thought I, I was one of the opposites. I'm going Heath Ledger or die, man. There's no one's going to come close. And then no, because of the way they were talking about it, I thought this is going to be dark, but but good. Only my first reactions was not good. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember when they announced it was going to be an R-rated film, and I went, "Oh, who's going to see that?" Yeah. Because. Yeah. Um, Sort of common logic is you release things with a we twelve last week about how Batman: The Dark Knight had the uh, most complaints of any film of the decade to the BBFC because they felt it wasn't worthy of a twelve; it should have been higher. And why do you make it a twelve? You make it a twelve because that's where the big selling movies get rated. Um, you want the whole family to see it because if it's older than that, they don't think it'll generate enough income. Well, Joker kind of puts that on its head. It was the first R-rated film to g- gross a billion dollars worldwide. So, on a fifty-sixty million dollar budget, was it? Yeah, and that was the push because after the DCEU bombed so spectacularly in Justice League, the decision was after Wonder Woman, maybe we go ahead and we stop the shared universe stuff. And the answer is actually in doing small budget standalone films that have a lot more creativity about them, which kind of flies against the uh, logic of conventional media theory these days. I do have to teach media theory to my A level students, and one of them is as we consolidate smaller and smaller, more and more um, work into, sm- into a smaller number of companies, creativity goes out the window. And this kind of flew into the face of it. They said, basically, if you give us something creative, the audience actually is dying for something new. Yeah. As much as you can do something new with a, with a property that everybody's heard a thousand times over. It's yet another Batman movie at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, he was inspired, Todd Phillips, by R-rated films of Scorsese, Things like Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. And they were trying to get Scorsese to direct, but in the end, he couldn't do it. Um, but it does debut at the Golden, uh, sorry, at the Venice Film Festival, where it wins the Golden Lion for Best Film and receives, I believe it's an eight minute standing ovation after the first screening of the film. Wow. wow. And that's Impressive. the first I heard of it was going, this is going to be a masterpiece because of this eight minute stand in ovation. But then as it got moved on to stateside, you started to hear more people say there's elements of this that are brilliant, but there are elements of this which are eh. And they specifically praised, I want to make sure I get this right. They specifically praised the score. They, they praised uh, Joaquin Phoenix and they praised the cinematography but there are mixed reviews on the dark tone and its presentation of mental illness. And maybe that's a good place to sort of just talk a little bit for a moment is go, how did we feel about the representation of mental illness in Joker? I found it really, really interesting. Um, I thought, I thought it was, I suppose a brave move to present mental illness in such a, a spotlight really. And for the whole duration of the film as well, because a lot of the time you'll get sort of little ideas that perhaps someone has a mental illness scattered throughout the film and then it'll be a reveal at the end of it and that kind of thing. Um, but this is really the focus throughout. Uh, Georgia, any thoughts on this? Um, I was really enjoying it. I didn't know, I knew bits and pieces about it, obviously because I've only just watched it. Um, so I'd heard bits and pieces about the story and how they were portraying it. And I knew it had um, elements of mental illness and that kind of thing in it. So I was a bit wary um, going into it 
um but i actually thought it was done really 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 well um i think it's a brilliant example it's almost a political message and a warning message of this is what happens if you don't look after your your ill people um i mean it's obviously a very exaggerated version of that kind of thing but i think there's definitely a message to be taken from it um because big parts of what happens in the plot are based around the fact that he no longer has the help he needs um and i think that's a really important message to take away from it if nothing else even if you are just viewing it as a comic book film yeah um see i'm torn because it's a comic book film and so i go comic book villains are often represented as being uh having some sort of mental disability or impairment and the Joker especially. And so I'm going, okay, it's just a Joker origin story. It is what it is. And therefore, I'm okay with whatever you want to do. The other thing being, well, it's being praised for how grounded and realism it is and the parallels to the modern day. In which case, do you have a responsibility then to represent mental illness in a good way, a proper way, an appropriate way? Uh, the concern I heard, because I was quite late seeing this in cinemas, and my students in my year 13 A-level class had all seen it multiple, multiple times. Uh, and were saying, you know, you have to go see this. You have to go see this. And so I was worried about the idea because I'd heard the rambling that it basically suggested we were all one, all mentally, uh, people with mental disabilities were one um, one bad day or one event away from completely losing it. And then I went and saw it. And I went, no, actually, I think it's much more, it's much more than that. I mean, this guy gets absolutely every support system he has broken down. And so that ends up with where we are. A couple of last minute things before we dive in. Um, Joaquin Phoenix had been a target for comic movies a couple times over. He turned down the role of Doctor Strange in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He mm-hmm. turned down the role of the Incredible Hulk in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What? Yeah. I can't see that. You see, after Ed Norton was was the original Hulk, and when he left, they brought in Mark Ruffalo. Which is the best choice ever. I agree with that. It is I the do, best choice ever. I do love Mark Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo yeah. as the Hulk. No. I just don't see Same. I don't see Joaquin Phoenix hitting that Marvel humor. I yeah. think I think he's better in something like this, where he's allowed to go all ridiculously actory on it. Yeah. Um To be fair, I've never seen him in anything else, so oh, I think when we get to best role oh, ever at the end, there's so many yeah, things. I'm, I'm not yeah. gonna be very useful in that part, but it's I would be really interested to watch him in another film, actually, and just see, you know, how he just does a regular guy. <laughs> well, there, there's there's a couple of things on the short list. I don't think in any of them he's a regular guy. But... Okay, well, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, he's not, probably no. a more regular guy than sure. <laughs> than in this film. And uh, he actually was pursued by Todd Phillips to play Joker for months, and he turned it down, thinking there was no new ground to uncover in with, with the character of, of a Joker. He was looking for a comic book character, but one who wasn't so notorious in pop culture and yeah. turned down and turned down meetings with Todd Phillips and Warner brothers didn't want him either. Warner brothers wanted Martin Scorsese to direct and they wanted Leo DiCaprio to play Joker. Boo. Now I love, I love Leo, but there's a guy who, there's a guy who plays like the, 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 the every man, the gritty regular guy on the street. That's yeah. Leo except for Titanic and Romeo. But since he turned like 25, you know, he's kind of been doing these really gritty actors, actors kind of roles. Not the Walking Phoenix is an actor's actor. He very much is. But it's a different yeah. kind of role he takes, I think. I'd be quite interested to see a Leo DiCaprio version of Joker, but it, I don't think it would have the same effect. No. 
the one person, though, who was not happy with the new Joker film was Jared Leto. Because Jared Leto, of course, as we said, had (laughs) just finished Suicide Squad and was promised by Warner Brothers he would get his own standalone film. But when his film was so universally hated, or at least his role in it, does anybody here like the Joker from Suicide Squad who's seen it? No. I hate it. I mean, I've not seen it properly, oh, no? but what I have seen, I hate of it. He was all the right. The person that put out in that movie was Harlequin. Uh, what? Uh, uh, Margot Robbie. She was amazing. Yeah, Margot, yeah, yeah she, was the, she was the only one that really sort of stood out in that movie. Yeah, yeah. So she, you can see why she, she grabbed the audience every time she came on screen. No one else did that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I agree with that big time. Including Jared Leto. Jared Leto, you just want to go, you know what? Just, uh, I'm... I'm <laughs> The Joker is one of my favorite villains, and to see Jared Leto play the part—nothing against him—but it just didn't gel well. It just didn't feel right. They were, see, they were trying to do something different, which you had to do. You couldn't just do anything that reminded anybody of Heath Ledger. So it was brave of them right. to try, but they failed. You know, shaving a guy's yeah. eyebrows off doesn't make him menacing. It just makes him look stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. you know, it was just—it was like they were trying so hard. And they, there's this great scene in a show called How I Met Your Mother. When they're playing at this like um, midnight, 3 a.m. poker game. And there's this one guy there who's got a hook and he's got like a parrot and he's got something else about him. And he gets lectured. He's like, you get to have one thing. You get to have one cool, interesting thing about you. You can't have all of them. It's like Starburns in Community. You, you can have one thing that defines you. You have the Starburns. You have the hat. You can't have everything. And so the Jared Leto's joke where they tried everything. As a result, we rejected everything. And so, he looked more like a gangster. Yeah, he did come off like a gangster, didn't he? And not like in a not like in like a like Heath Ledger nineteen thirties mobster way, but just like right. yeah, like, yeah, like some hip hop artist, some gangster type yeah. thing. That was just it just didn't it just did not gel well with me. It all. did not gel well with me either, buddy. And so he yeah. ends up quitting his agency about it because he felt that they could have worked harder to get the Jared. Not Jared, the, the Joaquin Phoenix movie off the books. And this is where, let's go ahead and open it. So we open with a very 1980s Warner Brothers style logo. Did anybody notice that? It wasn't the big WB you may have seen on Mickey Mouse cartoons or on Harry Potter intros. It was like a W with like a giant circle dot in the corner of it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I did notice that. It was, that, yeah. it, it was old school. It was old school. So uh, I appreciated that. And that introduces us to the world of Gotham. This Gotham is early 1980s Gotham. Yeah. And so we have that. And I, I think we should say going forward on this, um, there's a lot of cinema sort of sorry, uh, film review things online or on YouTube and things like that. And we try very hard if we can to avoid them before we start talking. Uh, for instance, if you'd listen to our uh, Disney one, Talking the Mickey. Uh, we just recently did one at Coco, and it was interesting because after we got finished, I went and finally watched the Cinema Sin Cinema Wins and found out that a bunch of jokes I made, they also made in theirs. And I purposely do not watch them before seeing these. However, I have seen the Cinema Sins and Wins for Joker already. So anything we bring up is not us just ripping off their, their, their content. If it happens to show up in both, it shows up in both. But it's not us trying to nick their material, so to speak. Does that make sense, Georgia? You're you're familiar with both those channels, aren't you? I am, yeah. No, I do try not to watch them before before we do a podcast on the film as well. Um, 
so I can hold credibility for that as well. I know yeah. you definitely don't if you've not seen the film before. So. Yeah, I just happened to watch it back when we saw the film when it came out and just went, oh, I want to see this and never thinking we do a podcast on it like four months later. So such is. <laughs> but I have not revisited Cinema Sins or Wins on it. So uh, and then not only do we get the old school Warner Brothers uh, logo, but we get this this news frequency. But the news frequency, Liam, you, you, you probably heard this just like I did. It's like it's AM radio and not FM radio. Yeah. Because back in the day, you couldn't get FM, could you? Like the 80s is like right late 70s, early 80s is when FM starts to really, at least in North America, that's when FM sort of becomes like a a commercial broadcasting thing. And the sound quality wasn't crisp and clear. It was muffly like like, like old AM radios. Yeah, definitely. And so then we get our first real view of Joaquin Phoenix, and he just looks emaciated as he's putting on his makeup. And as he puts on his makeup... He's doing the blue around his eye and the blue around his eye has fallen down his cheek into the form of a tear. And I think we get right off the start. This is not going to be a happy movie. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting as well to watch how he actually painted his makeup on because it was just so slow. Um, and it was like he was just completely deep in thought in something else, but sort of in a a distant thought, if that makes sense. So it was just really clear from the outset that he's in this sort of deep depression Um before we've even had any words or action in the film. Now, George, if this was your introduction, you saw us for the first time today. So when this comes up, what are you thinking? I actually have in my notes about this very opening scene because I was, as well as watching him, I was listening to the news report in the background. Um, and the news report is all about the trash in the city and how everything needs cleaning up and how there's issues and how it affects everyone and all of this kind of thing. And then whilst you're hearing that, you've got this picture of a broken man who, if you put him as the trash in the city, that message has a completely different meaning and they're setting you up for the story. Brilliant from minute one. And I thought it was absolutely, I thought it was an amazing way to start off what is eventually a very dark, but also quite humour. I mean, there's there's jokes in it. There's laughs yeah. in it all the way through. Um, and to set it up like that, I thought was really, really, really good. And... um. And it'll lean into the metaphor that gets taken place when we finally get introduced to Thomas Wayne in about 30 minutes of screen time about the trash as a metaphor. Um, yes. So yeah. Early on, we find out that um, uh, Arthur Fleck, who's the name of uh, the man who will be Joker, Arthur Fleck, and he is a clown and he gets rented out basically to random businesses. And one of them is a radio shop where everything needs to go. He's the guy holding the sign. His sign gets nicked by some youths who he chases. He cares way too much about this sign, but he chases after them, at which point they go from just, I can get the idea of the kids going, hey, let's go ahead and steal his sign. That'll be fun. Let's run away. And then it turns into, no, let's kill this guy. And they hit him with a sign yeah. and they, 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 they kick him and kick him and kick him. And it seems like Arthur has a lot of experience of being kicked literally while he's down. I do. The thing I found really interesting about this scene is that just before he turns to go, or as he's turning to go down the alleyway to chase them, um, he sort of skids to the side and he almost almost falls horizontally, mm-hmm. but kind of flicks himself back up. And it's very slapstick, like a clown performance. Yeah. Um, but obviously then you've got the complete juxtaposition of that with then him being beaten up in the alley. alley. And um, there's so much juxtaposition in the film. It's, there is. it's really interesting to watch. Liam, thoughts on that? Yeah, um, going back to the reason why he chases after the board, it's because later on you find out he has to pay for that board. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's the reason he chases after it. It's just money, isn't it? I think it speaks to a man who's like down to his last desperate yeah. ploy for anything, right? What I also like about that opening scene of that is um, how he's so colorful and centralized. Mm-hmm. Everything around is more darker. You know, you that, know, he is the focal point of that thing. Absolutely. That scene. And this is something that I couldn't, Liam, I'd be interested in getting your, your, your take on this. Is it something I couldn't really separate myself from the whole time I was watching it was, A, how often Arthur is in the perfect center of a shot, perfectly framed around the outside in this very, um, equal, I'm trying to the word for, for, for equal. I, I can't really quite get it. In this very perpendicular is not what I want to say, but I'll say it for now in this very perpendicular sort, sort of layout with a slow zoom in or a slow zoom out and the cinematography as well as the score. And I couldn't separate the two because in the moments where they were doing something with one, they were, they were both present. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so the score uh, actually won best, um, best score, best, best original music, best score. Yeah. Best score. Yeah. Best score. It went to, I want to make sure it's right. Hilder, Guanandeter, who did the music for Sh- Chernobyl, anybody who saw that series on Sky, which is universally acclaimed, she did the music yeah. for that. And I mentioned the word she. Georgia, you often have something to say about, about the music in films. So what do, you, what do you think about the fact that for the first time and maybe the, you know, the, the last time for a while, we, we have a female composer here? I think it's really quite important. I don't think there's enough female rep- representation in the world of Hollywood at the moment at the moment. And in the past um i think it's an issue that i could probably talk about for a very long time but i will choose not to for now that can be a completely different podcast i should imagine um but no i think it's really important that for a film that has now been so well acclaimed and has done so well that it has got a female name attached to that first four or five cast a crew sorry that you get in the um credits at the end um, it might speak to the fact that this was a bit of a risk, risky film yeah. to begin with when it was in production. Um, I think if this is a regular, a regular new Batman film, or if it's a Avengers film or that kind of thing, I don't think you get um, the woman in that spot. You'd get someone who was already well acclaimed in that spot. But the fact that, yeah. that now that she's done that, that's made a hopefully made a bit of a pathway for other female artists and for her herself to continue going up through um, more acclaimed films. And the more that happens, the more we'll get it in the future as well. So I think it's a really big step and very exciting. Yeah, like we, we, we don't work in the industry. We're just four people obviously sitting around uh, microphones who appreciate films. Uh, but we are aware, I think, of things like Natalie Portman making cries for great representation and directing amongst women. And we see a cry for a greater variety of acting roles for women, uh, I, I just haven't seen things like directors of cinematography or, or principal photography and composing. I mean, you don't typically hear the same cries of words representation in that. And it has been, you know, there's those same five, six names we keep throwing around there. That old boys club of, of composers, Williams and Zimmer and uh, Giacchino and, and names such as that. Zim, not Zemeckis, uh, Silvestri. And it's, it's, the same, it's the same names, Horner, over and over and over again. And uh, it, it's nice to see someone else push their way in, but also, like we said, a female voice. And as, especially with a, a score that was so dark and massive as the score in Joker. 
everything was big and imposing, just like Gotham is big and imposing. Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously there's not really any sort of magical musical moments in Joker either. It's a very dark film, so you don't get the same kind of light and shade. It's all very shady. Well, you do, but when they do it, it's not the score. When they do it, it's that smile, though your heart is breaking. Oh, yeah. You get the juxtaposition and it's ironic there. Yeah, because it's ironic, it doesn't feel the same kind of, you know, comforting effect that you get from a lot of film scores. And at this point, we are... 30 minutes into the review, and we get the title card that comes up as he's laying there broken and it's zooming out and we get Joker. And just like the cinematography and just like the score, the title card is massive and almost obstructs our view of him through it. And we're going, ooh, and this is the tone for the film. Arthur Fleck will be victimized by everything around him. And we go from here and then we cut it's an instant cut to a different scene, and Arthur is laughing. Yeah. He's laughing in the shrink's office, and he's almost laughing at his own misfortune. And we get discovered to his condition at this point. I really wish that I'd had a timer out, actually, to see how long he's laughing for when the film sort of starts properly at this point. Um, because it, it is a really, really long laughing fit, isn't it? I, I've got that it lingers for too long. Yeah. And but the, in a good way. In a good way. For, but the, it, for the film. Purpose. For the film, yeah. for the purpose. But in the way that it makes you feel uncomfortable and agitated because you really want that release of a cut. Just show yeah. me something else. Let me look at something else. And we don't get to. Liam, it's a lot like that classic Sinead O'Connor music video. Oh, yeah. Nothing yeah. compares yeah. to you? Yeah. Yeah, we're just like stares her in the face. You're like, please just cut. Please just <laughs> cut. I, I don't want to look at this woman cry anymore. Please just cut. And it was like that with the Joker. I'm going, please show me something else. And I thought it was. Did you know throughout the film they do this? They make you feel uncomfortable. Yes, they and do. To the point where you're squirming. You, you just don't. You just want it to end. Yeah. And they do it time and time and time again. I think that's what I, I found difficult watching it the first time. And but once I knew what was coming, I then looked at it with different eyes. I really enjoyed as well how uh, after this laughing fit does finally finish, um, you just get the first proper line of the film and it's, is it just me or is it getting crazier out there? And it's it's quite a lighthearted moment, I suppose, yeah. um, because it's just so ironic. Yeah, and, and, and the woman who's playing the shrink is asking those same tired, shrinky questions, which we'll come back to later in the film. But we have this woman, she's, she's a woman in probably what, her late 40s, early 50s maybe? Yeah, and she's a woman. Uh, she's 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 black. Her uh, office is uh, jam packed with stuff, and then she makes a passing reference to him being locked up or being um, locked up in hospital. Locked up in hospital, and does you know? And we get a cutaway really quickly to him like bash his head against the window at the psychiatric hospital, and then we cut back, and they never really explain it. Well. It's, I think it's because he doesn't really know because she says, has he thought about why he was locked up? And he says, who knows? And this is where I'm going to ask to consider two levels of the film. Okay. Kind of, Liam, kind of like I did with Within Bruges where we went, is this all um, purgatory? Yeah. What if this whole film's in his head? What if yeah. everything here, he's still in the mental hospital? And just, yeah. I'm not saying that that's something I'm fully in on, but let's just consider it as we go through, because I think there's a few threads you could definitely pull out. Because as we find out, Arthur's not a narrator we can trust. 
what we see through his eyes, we can't trust. And at what point do we go, well, do we just limit it to this one storyline that they try to limit it to? Or does everything now become compromised because we can't trust the witness? I really like that that's never actually answered. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's good for that. Yeah, uh, it keeps you guessing all the way through. You're, 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 trying, to, you're trying to tie the, tie the links together yourself. Yes. So, so you're, you're getting a different view of it in your own head than what, say, um, Ellie is and I am and Georgia am. Absolutely. So, so, yeah, and that's why I think the film works on so many levels. Because I, I, I personally don't like this movie that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very curious to hear George's take on it because she as going through because all of us are obviously familiar with how it was going to go and how it was going to end, mm-hmm. and Georgia wasn't. So at some point, Georgia, I'm going to definitely direct some questions to you. Going, what did you make of this? Because you can only watch a movie once for the first time, and you've got the benefit yep. of that being this time. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what was your take? Just, uh, the, the, just a quick cutaway. And was there anything, or did you just kind of put it out of sight, out of mind? The bit where he like slams his head together in, in the in the flashback, we assume, to the hospital scene. Um, so I just assumed that was part of um, his backstory. I thought it was just pretty good storytelling. We yeah. know obviously now that his what he has is serious enough that he's been locked up for it. Um, he's obviously been able to control it to a point that he's been allowed out. Um, but it shows you that he's on a um, he is on a slippery slope, which may go downwards pretty quickly. Um, but I think it's just a really good little bit of exposition that's done without you just having to be told he was in in hospital for this amount of time because he has this condition and he does this, this, and this. Yep. Rather than saying that, it just shows you quite quickly he was in, he was doing this, happened. Now he's out. Carry on. Um, and I think it's a really good story. To- Telling device, especially in a film that is two hours long, um, you don't need the extra exposition. So I think they've done a good job with that. Yeah, and I don't think you want to be spoon fed in this situation. It's good to leave some things kind of whatever. And Tom Phillips said uh, when he was writing it, they purposely left a bunch of things ambiguous, so you wouldn't know. So you would feel like Liam was saying, unsettled and agitated. This time, not by a lingering camera shot, but by going, "I don't know what's happening in the film, and I like to know what's happening in the film." So. Um, we cut to the bus where we get what I call glorious window shot number one. And he looks miserable as he rides the bus. He has a nice moment, he thinks, with a child who he tries to make smile. He's accosted by the child's mother. He laughs uncontrollably, reveals the card that he gives to strangers saying, I have a condition. It also tells the audience, I have a condition. I laugh without reason. I'm sorry. And I think my take on it is that he wasn't doing anything wrong. And he really is like, it's easy to look at this and go, man, this guy just needs to catch a break because the woman did not need to be that rough on him. Yeah, I think yeah. I think in our modern society, it's quite likely that a parent would have that sort of response to a strange man on the bus or train trying to, um, you know, interact with her child. Um, but at the time when the film set, yeah. sort of... 40 years ago. Yeah. Jeez. It, I don't think that would be so much of a obvious concern perhaps and mm-hmm. it, it seems like she's being a little bit harsh so we get from that and then we get our first appearance of the stairs and as he goes up the stairs it's dark his head is down and the camera tilts back so it makes the stairs look even bigger as he tries to climb them and it's the idea that even arthur's environment is beating him down 
I found that that shot really interesting watching the film a second time around because you've got that sort of iconic moment later on in the film where he's dancing on the stairs and he's really kind of jubilant and he's off to be on the Murray show and this time it's just the complete opposite of that and he's really downtrodden. And back to that juxtaposition, we don't get the importance of that if we don't see the stairs beat him here. Yeah. And everything's so... Bl- what I like about the stairs is that makes several appearances in the in the movie. Yes, yeah. from the same perspective. Yeah, 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 and that's, and, that's, and that's different times of how he's feeling in his yeah. life. Yeah, and more often than not, I mean, and this time it was it was very dark. It was very blue. The semiotics of blue, meaning that you know it's cold, it's dark, it's distant, it's beating him down. Sorry, Liam, what were you saying? Oh, I was just just saying about just how the stairs make it, it makes a big appearance in this movie, and that's and it shows the the different sides of him through his journey and the stairs seem to be an important part of it. Yeah. And when you, when you, you know, at the beginning, when you see the stairs, it's laborious and hard. And the last time he comes down the stairs, it's more easy and agile and yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. It goes I do. The- and I love them stairs. Cause I think them stairs are going to be like the Rocky stairs. Well, they are. Do you know what I mean, the, 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 the problem is they've become like a tourist spot now in New York and residents are going, you've ruined, like, I need to get these stairs to go, <laughs> to go home. Please stop stopping and taking videos on my stairs. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's great. It's like the Rocky steps. It's like Abbey road. It's just things that became bigger. It's like the, the house in breaking bad where people keep throwing pizza on the roof. It's, it's, it's one of these things. Um, and then we get home and we meet mom. We meet Penny Fleck. And Penny Fleck was originally, the role was offered to Francis McDermott, Liam, who you might remember from Three Billboards outside, uh, oh my word, three, Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah. So she was offered it, but turned it down. And then it went to Francis Conroy. And Francis Conroy, uh, people might know her from being the mother on Six Feet Under. You might know her for being Barney Stinson's mother on How I Met Your Mother. Uh, is, that, is that the lady who actually actually played the role yes she's also um in desperate housewives is she yep she she plays uh an an elderly lady okay um, i feel who... like she plays a lot of elderly ladies <laughs> okay yeah but that's, that's a big part of her character she's sort of a, a bit of a senile woman that now if she could play a 20 year old to... man that's an acting job she goes to <laughs> <laughs> she's also in desperate housewives <laughs> and she plays a lady who goes to carlos for a massage and gets a bit too interfering with his life Oh, really? Yeah, it's a really interesting role. And if the role here is to make you feel agitated, oh, dear God, she does a good job. Oh, yeah. yeah. She makes me feel uncomfortable. She just does. And she has a really annoying voice as well. She's a really annoying. It's like one of those sweet, sickly voices, but you're like, I don't like it. But I would like to add that that is, that is also the voice that she has in Desperate Housewives as well. And so it is a large part. I think, of, it's, I th- I think it's her, her voice and yeah. she gets cast in good. I think she's also an American Horror Story and things like that. Georgia, had you seen her in anything before? Only um, possibly How I Met Your Mother. That's the only place I would have seen her in. I've not seen anything else that you've mentioned. Okay. And on the TV, which always seems to be on the TV, there's only two programs on in all of Gotham. It's the news or it's the Murray (laughs) Franklin show. Yeah. Okay, Murray. And unlike everything else, which is blue and dark, we have Murray Franklin show is all like in 80s Technicolor. And it's bright and it's light. And at this point, um, Arthur imagines himself in the audience having a moment where he laughs too hard at one of the jokes and Murray asks for the house lights and uh, asks Arthur some questions and Arthur says how good he takes care of his mother and Murray invites him down 
and in a private moment afterwards says, I'd give all this up for a kid like you. And we get the idea that Arthur's desperate for a father. And also at this point, we find out that Arthur's mother is desperate for a letter from Thomas Wayne, who we're not really told why, but he's supposed to write because he would care about them for some reason. I think it's not just the fact that he's desperate for a father, though. It's also the fact that he's idolized um, Murray for such a long time and perhaps because he is all that's on the TV um, but yeah. you really get this sense of he's got an overactive imagination um, because it becomes very clear very quickly that this is a imagined sort of audience spot yeah. on the Murray show yeah, but I didn't realise that was imagined until he was invited down you know what I mean? yeah I think they might have played it as a memory or something at first and then you go yeah. wait hang on and then I started to twig and I was like uh, yeah this isn't real yeah <laughs> This is his thought. So then we go from that and we get back, we cut back to him watching the TV and then we're with him the next day at work and he's doing his laces up mm-hmm. or something. And we get the spinal cord of him as, as he's sitting there t- and it just looks, he looks skeletal. He looks absolutely oh, gross. Oh, he lost yeah. 54 pounds to play that role. Oh my gosh. I don't know if you know, walking oh, wow. Phoenix, walking Phoenix is not a fat man. So wow. like that's almost four stone for our, those of us here in the good old UK. And because of this, they couldn't do reshoots because as soon as he was done, they had to get him back to weight. Absolutely. So you, he's at a dangerous yeah. weight in this film. So you have to get him the first time through. And he was saying how obsessed he used to get over 0.3 of a pound in his, in his, like he said, basically he developed an eating order disorder to do the, to do the role. Oh and he was eating like, you know, green beans, steamed cabbage and apples. And that's all he was eating the whole time he was doing the role. That's some real dedication. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. I think if it was a female actress, we wouldn't applaud that sort of weight loss. I don't know that it's necessarily applauding it, but it just adds to the grittiness of the film, doesn't it? And I, yeah. I think I would still find it... Well, I suppose it's the shock factor. It's not It's not an applause. It's, it's just like kind of the acknowledgement of how far they've had to go for the role. I mean, they purposely shot it in a way to show it off, though. Oh, yeah. So... That, that again is to make you feel uncomfortable, wasn't it? Yeah, and that did make you feel uncomfortable. And I think the first time you see him bent over or you know topless as well, it is also when he's got all those bruises from being beaten up. So it just looks even worse the first time. So from there we go. There's a quick little scene where um, Arthur gets a gun from Randall uh, to protect himself with. Uh, he gets called into the office and told that he has to go ahead and pay for the sign. Because the guy needs his sign. We see that he's been victimized at work. He's been so he got beat up by the kids, and now he's getting beat up by his boss at work over this sign. But he has to take it, so he does. And then we cut to Arthur afterwards taking his rage out on some garbage, fittingly enough. And just before it cuts, you see him smile as well. Yeah. It's a really big smile. So it's again just that huge juxtaposition. And so we have that. And so we cut from here, and then he's home and he's in the the, the elevator in the lift, and we meet Sophie for the first time. And Sophie is a mom with a young little daughter and they complain in small talk about how crappy this building is. And the little girl is so cute. She just keeps going, this building sure is terrible. It's terrible, isn't it, mama? I I hate this building. This building sucks. And as she's talking, Sophie makes eye contact with Arthur and um, simulates with the fingers to the head like she's shooting herself in a little playful moment between adults. It's really interesting, actually, because it's sort of the only time in the film, really, where he's treated like a normal person and with a little bit of kindness. Yeah. Um, he gets kindness from his from his mother um, sometimes, but in a in a different sort of way, and it's perhaps a little bit more patronising. But Sophie just obviously doesn't know 
any of his history so she just acts like a nice genuine person i think and um it's it's very different to the rest of the film but you can also see why it's so easy for him to then fixate on sophie because she has shown him that kindness yeah uh georgia any thoughts on that i think it's really quite interesting how she's portrayed throughout the film um Having only watched it for the first time, the reveal that comes a little bit later on, I wasn't expecting at all. And it tore my heart out um, because you think he's still got that one leaning post left and then it turns out that's gone too. Um, so, yeah, no, I really enjoyed her her role in the film. I was terrified from the moment that he met her and she made that um, gesture and then he later follows her around a little bit. I was terrified that he was just going to kill her straight away. Um, it was what, where my brain went with that. Um, I actually have the note in my phone. Oh, God, he's going to kill her. And then the next line is, well, he hasn't yet, like from about half an hour into the film. So, um, no, I thought it was really interesting to have him almost have a bit of a love interest, um, which I don't think the Joker's ever had. I mean, other than there's stuff with Harley Quinn, yes. but it's a bit more ambiguous so no i really i really enjoyed this relationship that they had or it to have had see i never really i never really thought he he was ever going to hurt her at all okay he was to me he was so downtrodden that he was just looking for nice in people and i think a combination of a load of being kicked so many times then turned him I think it's interesting because I think Georgia went right there. You went the opposite. I think I was kind of in the middle. I didn't think he would until near the end. Yeah. Uh, but what was interesting is, speaking of juxtaposition, is more than once in this movie, we go from that and then we cut right to a scene with him and his mum in a bit of a weird... So weird. ...romantically charged kind of energy. And now he's giving her a bath. And just to make sure you feel a little bit creepy, they make sure they shoot it at an angle where you can see just a hint of Francis Conroy's cleavage. And you're like, oh, this is weird. Yeah. This is very weird. It's like at first you've got it sort of from a behind or sort of from the shoulder yeah. angle. And then it t- you're thinking, oh, is this, this is strange? Like, is she wearing anything? And yeah. then it just tilts and it's like, oh, Okay, no, nope, definitely not. Still weird. And so... We, I'm going to skip a little bit where Arthur starts researching jokes. We get the idea that he really wants to be a comedian but doesn't get how comedy works. He thinks it's just A plus B equals C. Uh, and we cut then to him going through his diary and writing in some jokes. And he writes in his book, people expect you to behave. Oh, what's the worst part about having a mental illness? People expect you to behave as if you don't. With a little smiley face. A little smiley face own. on don't. And then as soon as we see that, we hear of a knock on the door as this is going on. And this is where we meet Sophie. And Sophie's been followed, as Georgia alluded to, by um, Arthur that day. And she seems to quite like it and make some small talk. And I thought it was really interesting. This scene happens right after we see that admission of having a mental illness and how you act if you have it and how you act if you don't. And I wondered if that was a bit of a tipping of the hand to the audience that don't trust everything you're about to see. Don't forget your narrator here has a mental illness. In hindsight, I think, yes. But at the time when you're watching it, you're not thinking that far ahead because you're being surprised at each corner because you're working it out as you're going through the film. 
but when you watch it the first time and then you watch it a second time, you're watching it with second eyes, not first eyes, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just realized now that I've skipped an important scene where he's sort of going over his meeting with Sophie. And he's quite obviously, you know, um, mentally charged by, by the idea of Sophie. And he starts dancing. He's dancing after he, and he's just put mom in the bath. He's just finished with her. And now we're cutting back and he's sort of simulating him sort of dancing with who we assume is Sophie. And he's topless again. Just and he's topless really again. Uncomfortable. And he starts dancing that kind of weird dance. And he goes, he starts narrating both sides and goes, Oh, you're a really good dancer. And he doesn't change his voice. So first you don't know who he's like, Oh, thank you. Who are you? Oh, my name's Arthur. And you, oh, hello, Sophie. And he goes, you know, do you come here often? Or I'm, I'm yeah. Oh, you're a pretty good dancer. He goes, I know. And I'm better than him. And he points his gun to the side and then it goes off. And there's two schools of thought because we're having a discussion here. And it's one of these two options. Option number one, he just loses control and he shoots the gun. That's option one. Option yeah. two is that much like in the Murray Franklin uh, fantasy daydream, whatever you want to call it, he is so deep in that actually in this moment, he's somewhere else where he actually does shoot somebody. And then the, the, him firing the gun in real life pops him out of his sort of uh, fantasy delusion, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I took it as the first one. Yeah, I think the first one's the easy one to take. Yeah, that's how I took it the first, well, first and second time I watched it. Yeah. Georgia? I found all the stuff with the gun to be really quite interesting because throughout the film, the gun is used in pivotal moments for different bits and pieces. Um, and I noticed quite early on and then it continued to happen kind of solidifying what i thought every time he pulls his gun out his first instinct is to put it to his head um and it's just a little a little thing that happens every single time that gun comes out and it it was really interesting to watch kind of that uh, that progression with it um especially near the end again when the gun comes out again and that kind of thing um but so yeah i found that really interesting and in that scene, I didn't know, because again, that's happened just before he gets up to dance, he has his gun out and it flicks towards his head for just half a second, but it's there. Um, and you kind of wonder in his, if he is having, in his little dream world that he's in, is he shooting someone else? Is he shooting himself? Is he shooting Sophie? Is this, or is it just a complete accident? Does he forget he has the gun in his hand? Well, he doesn't know um, I, yes, yes. So I, I don't know. I didn't make a decision on that. I just saw it as that's what's happened next. That's fine. Um, yeah. Something that does happen throughout those. Whenever Arthur has a gun, he gets almost seductive with his dancing. There's some sort of an appeal to power, I think, with Arthur. For a guy who has so little power, whenever he gets it, he gets almost sexually confident with the gun. He gets very free with his movements. Or is it the dancing that makes him feel more powerful because he's got that creative release? He only dances when he has the gun. Okay. Or in moments where he's shown power. Yeah, and he seemed, that seemed to excite him a bit more. Even it, though it he's... You, you watch as he holds that gun through the film. Mm-hmm. You see how more excited he gets by it. Like when he shoots the hole in the wall, he's frightened by it to start with. And then he's curious about it. He's like, ooh, hello. Yeah. You know, and that, he gets that excitement from it. So, yeah. So, we then go to the hospital. And Arthur's really good with the kids. Arthur, is, until the gun comes out, Arthur's Arthur's doing an awesome job. Well, he's really good with Bruce Wayne later on as well, isn't he? When he's when he's got the actual little clown sketch, yeah. I think he's a really good clown, and he's good with that little girl on the bus 
or a little boy on the bus. Yeah. Like he's good with kids, I think, as Arthur is a kid. Yeah. But his yeah. I think I think he just does make a fantastic clown. And yeah. he actually is really good at his job. He's just not got the kind of mental faculties to back it up when it comes to making decisions. So the gun comes out and he ends up getting fired from being a clown for that, and that's about it. Uh and then he's coming home from being fired. And he's on the train and some, um, I can only call them Wall Street douchebags, get, get, get on the train. That's a very good description. And they start harassing this woman. And then Arthur starts laughing uncontrollably. And that draws their ire. And they sing, uh, well, the one guy sings, uh, bring in the, send in the clowns. Send in the clowns. And you know what? Despite Arthur's joke later on, the, I thought the guy actually had the song more or less in tune. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too bad at all. Um, I did have a little bit of an issue, though, with the fact that I really don't think that these bullying thugs, while they might have been well-dressed and educated, um, would have that intimate knowledge of sending the clowns. See, I would have said that, but that's on the, on the CinemaSins thing. So I was purposely trying to distance myself from his joke. But you have oh, not seen the CinemaSins okay. video, so you can so, say yeah. that. Um, but also like the confidence to sing that in front of their friends as well. Like, yeah. Just to know the song intimately. But. Hey boys, check this out. I'm going like two verses deep yeah, into we've this. Ju- we've just been harassing, sexually harassing this woman, but now I'm going to sing a musical theater song. Well, hey. You never know. Um, and so he kills, and the best, he kills the three douchebags. And the best part is we don't see the first shot. It would be really easy for the director to show us Arthur getting the gun out, cocking it back and firing it at him. But instead we get almost just more of a reaction shot to the flash and him falling down. I think that's what because... Your, what was your reaction to that? Uh, the first think? time? Um, yeah, watching that. Do you, do you agree with how he dealt with that? No, I don't think you should shoot people if they're giving you <laughs> no, But no, to be no, fair... No, no, I mean, but we... not shoot them, but, you know, if you're trying to defend you, if you're trying to defend yourself, I mean, they literally did sort of basically intimidate him and come up to him. He yeah. didn't go up to them. No, it's, it's, it's the world oppressed on him again and he found himself on the ground getting kicked again which is why I'm going is it all in his head because is it just a little bit too perfectly mirrored what we saw earlier Yeah. is it too yeah. close it's three guys they're kicking him and they're all saying things like kick him get him which is exactly what happened the first time kick him get yeah. him Yeah. it is but then he's yeah. also really challenged isn't he and he has got these kind of outward things like his laughter that are going to cause him to be victimized so yeah I guess it could be argued both ways. But I think in terms of the the sudden gunshot and sort of the fact that we don't really see it actually happen, but just see the aftermath of it, um, I think that's how it would have been to Arthur as well because he hasn't really had time to process what he's doing, I don't think. He's just automatically reacted. Yeah. I find it difficult, being British, we don't have such a gun culture. So we don't know how other people would react over in America. Yeah, we don't really have that in Canada either. If they're carrying guns on them anyway, would they use it like he used it? I don't know. I don't live in that culture, so I don't know. I've never really thought to myself in my life, does this person have a gun? I've never had to be in sort of that situation. Um, I lived a year in the States, but uh, outside of that, in my my adult life, you never have to go, is this person possibly carrying? It's never entered my brain for a moment. Oh, okay. So he washes himself off in the bathroom mirror, at which point then he starts to dance again dance kind of sexually in the bathroom uh which was an ad lib i found out he wasn't suppo- it was supposed uh-huh. to end with him just wash his hands but as he walks oh, wow. by there's this giant mirror almost it looks almost like one of those two-way mirrors you would see in a police station or a psychiatric hospital 
So yeah. I'm, I'm just, you can see, I'm looking at this through his lens. And I'm just trying to see what else is there. He gets home and now he's walking differently. The score is powerful. He is striding. And something that he does so well in this, Walking in Phoenix, is his physical acting. And he walks with purpose, knocks on Sophie's door. She opens it and he kisses her. He doesn't wait. He just does. And she reciprocates. And at this point, now, unfortunately, I had this ruined for me. So I'm quite curious, Georgia, you just watched this for the first time. Uh, I did not get to know this wasn't real or if this was or wasn't. I didn't have that chance to go, is this real? Is this not real? What was your take on this? Were you were you buying this 100%? I was wasn't buying it 100%. Um, I was confused by it. I okay. kind of went, what, what just happened? Yeah. Um, because especially because it's that initial um, time that it happens. And then because it's kind of backed up throughout the next um, bit of the film, you kind of go, oh, okay, maybe that did happen. Um, it's not until later that you go, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, no, I guess I bought in more as the film went on. Um, but no, the initial reaction was, hang on, that's strange. But no, as it, as it went on, I bought in more and more. Yeah, at first it was, it was spoiled for me. So um, I get to see that. So he, we cut back. He's getting fired from his job. He said he storms out of the room and then goes, "Whoops, I forgot to punch out." In which case, he punches the time clock out and stamps on it. And as he goes down the stairs, he kicks. He writes on it. What was it? Um, don't forget to smile. And he erases the forget to, so it just says, "Don't smile." And he kicks the door open, and all of a sudden, he's bathed in white light as he leaves the. Um, chuckletorium or whatever it is we want to call this place ha-has but the white light's interesting i want to hang on to that for a second but if we take the idea that he's escaping this place and the white light is his salvation or his freedom let's just think about that a little bit as we go through um and then we're back at his house and we find out that thomas wayne might run for mayor and he refers then to start talking about the people of the city as trash and people who didn't make anything out of their lives shouldn't take it out on those who did make something out of their lives. And question for the table. We've both sat through a few, politi- a few politicians, a few speeches by politicians in elections lately. Have you ever heard someone running for office refer to the constituents as trash who need to be cleaned up? And just because they didn't make something out of their lives, like you wouldn't do this, would you? No, not so. No. I have written down in my notes: Is someone running for mayor actually going to be this big of a dick? Because you're going to alienate yourself from you the are. people who's trying to vote for you. So why would you do that? Here's what I'll do: I'll I really mean, make them angry. If you're related to Batman, then maybe because Batman's a dick too. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't watch the last podcast, Georgia George hates Batman. Not a fan of Batman. <laughs> so is is your argument here, Ian, that perhaps this is another? sign that it's all made up in Arthur's head. Yeah. yeah. This is this is my yeah. this is me going yeah. everything is an allegory. It's all running in his head because we see a few of these too where people things happen that shouldn't happen this easily or simply. And Thomas Wayne, I just don't buy he's going on the news referring to people's trash when he's been kicking in the trash and left in the trash. Mm. I think this is all signs of being damaged. Um Yeah, I agree. So we have him going and doing uh Oh, what is this? Professional. He goes to his uh, therapist's office again next. Oh, thank you. He goes to the therapist's office again. Now, the therapist is telling him, we've got to drop you because we don't have any funding. And she says, they don't give a shit about people like you, Arthur, and they don't really give a shit about people like me either. Which I had written down in my notes as well. And I'm like, this is the least professional shrink ever. Even if you just got fired, I don't think you're saying this to the patient. 
the patient who's got like severe mental issues. You're just not saying this. And it's something that will come back in the speech later on the Murray Franklin show. There's something about that as well. We go to him, kind of do some stand-up. He fails, he bombs, but Sophie is there smiling on. And I'm like, wait, what? And just <laughs> he does the first joke and it bombs. And this is the second joke. We cut out to that smile, though your heart is breaking. And he basks in the light and we're led mm. to believe that they all love him. And we leave it there and we get like, sort of like the love montage of them walking through the street. He sees about the killer. Sophie says, if you ask me, this, this, this killer has done the world a favor. Three. She says, I think the guy who did it is a hero. Three less pricks in Gotham City. Yeah. And so um, he comes home after leaving Sophie behind. And what does he do? I'm going to dance with my mother. And wake her up first He as wakes well. up mom and he says, come on, dance with me. Dance with me. And she says, but you you were in Cologne. He said, oh, I had a hot no, date. Before that, she talks about Thomas Wayne. Yeah, Thomas Wayne. It's literally her first thought of is Thomas every Wayne. waking moment is about Thomas Wayne. And then she runs downstairs to get the mail. And then Arthur discovers the letter where he finds out that Mumph is writing to Thomas Wayne every day to help raise her son. Her son being Arthur. And then we cut... And we cut to some after some argument they must have had where she's locked herself in the bathroom and says, you're just gonna, you're so angry. He goes, okay, I'll stop being angry. And I'm like, why was this kept from us? Because we don't see the argument. We just see the after argument. Oh, you're really starting to convince me on this. See? This thought of, of it all being in his head, actually. See, I don't think any of this is legit because they don't show us this. They just show us pieces of it. And that would be fragmented. It in would his be. Brain. And she refers to Thomas Wayne as a good man, and he's a powerful man, she says. And what is Arthur obsessed with? Being powerless and wanting to feel powerful. So who's his father figure going to be? Okay, we're going to make him a powerful man, a man who people respond to. We go ahead and Arthur decides he's going to go visit the Wayne household. Mm -hmm. And he discovers Bruce Wayne, little baby Batman. And did anybody else notice? Georgia, did you notice? We haven't heard from you in a bit. But Thomas Wayne and Arthur Fleck were wearing the exact same color palette in this scene. I did not. No, that is not. They were both wearing beige jackets and white shirts. Now, in the case of of Bruce Wayne, it's a white little turtleneck, whereas Arthur's is like a dirty white button up. So it's almost like Bruce is like a cleaner, nicer version of himself, especially if you think he believes that he is Thomas Wayne's son. It's almost him producing Bruce in his own image, just cleaner and younger and richer. Quite possibly. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I did like the fact that they tie in um, Bruce Wayne into it. And I like the fact he's a young boy in it as well. I think it adds a lot to... Which is the rest of the rest of the relationship that they have. Which is actually the last episode is that they often play the Joker as an older actor than Bruce Wayne, and this sort of lines up with that. But we do see the one image we do see is Arthur forcing his fingers into Bruce's mouth to create a smile. And he, yeah, he did he did this to himself at the start of the film as well. And all I'm thinking is, stop touching people's faces. There's coronavirus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely, that's not social distancing, even if you put a fence in the middle. And so he comes back from this, and now Mum's being wheeled out of the apartment, having had an apparent stroke. And one of the last lines before we cut to that scene is, your mother was delusional. She's a sick woman. Your mother was delusional. She's a sick woman. This is said by Alfred. Alfred. Oh, is it Alfred? 
Alfred. That's Alfred. He's British, so he's oh, he's Alfred. It's cute. never called Alfred, but it's clearly Alfred. And so we cut back, and now we've got her being wheeled out by the ambulance. Now, how does anybody find her? She lives at home by herself. If she had a stroke or something, how are the ambulance there? Well, the police were there beforehand. How are the police there? How, well, we're but, told detectives there much later. If you're going with my theory, what mm. if Arthur has gaps in time? And what if he's not really going to the household? And what if something else really happens to mother? Just a thought. Because Arthur, we then go to the hospital where Arthur is uh, approached by two detectives who basically let him know we're looking into you for the deaths of those three guys. Um. Arthur says yes, he'll see on his mother, and he blames the cops for giving her a stroke. What did you ask her? And they're all it's all very ambiguous. And then Arthur walks in the door that says exit. And it clearly says exit. And it says exit in big letters, and he even waves his hand at the sensor, and right above the sensor it says exit. So just stick with me for a minute. What if Arthur can't read? Because we see Arthur be able to read a whole lot in the letter. Yeah. And when he goes to Arkham Asylum. But what if Arthur really can't read? Because the only thing we see about him reading is when he he, he walks into an exit. A simple four-letter word. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. And so, because everything else we find out, the letter, it's just Arthur. There's no one else around. He discovers the letter on his own, right? Yeah. When he's at Arkham Asylum, he reads the information by himself. Right? Yeah. What if Arthur can't read? What if this is all in his head? I mean... It would explain why his writing is quite so messy, but then he wouldn't have the ability to write if he can't read. And um, it's true. I guess you kind of go, no one ever reads from that notebook other than him. Um, actually, no, I think the, you know, that line, the, his, the shrink Murray. does, doesn't she? Does she the reads from the book. The therapist looks at the book. Does she read it? Yeah. Oh, does she? Okay. She reads exactly she... what it says. Yeah. Oh, but you're going to find out, I don't believe that therapist is real. I think Murray reads okay. from it as well, although Murray is also often imagined by Arthur. So Yes. So we get to, he's at the hospital, Sophie's beside him, and he's looking at the one show that's on, the Murray Franklin show, and Murray betrays him in a sense because he plays the video, and it's the video of him bombing at the um, comedy club. And also when he's watching that TV, um, Sophie's not in the room anymore. Sophie's not in the room anymore. Left to get a coffee. And never comes back, I guess. No. <laughs> so he gets home, cut to home, and he's sleeping in his be- a double bed. I think he's on his mum's bed, isn't he? Because he's like smelling the pillow. Do we ever see Arthur's bed? No, I was thinking it's that It's a as double well. bed. He's on one side of the bed and he smells the other pillow. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Mm. Very creepy. And so we're going, what's really going on here? Because we might get the idea that mom's obviously disturbed and isn't well, and there's been abuse. To what extent? Remember, he bathes her. He dances with her. There's some sexualization of the relationship. Um, Did you notice as well, next to the bed on the floor, there was a newspaper and there was a picture of a clown and a headline saying, kill the rich. No, I didn't notice that. So again, not one of the first times you get to see the newspaper articles that like come out more and more throughout the end of the film to show the spread of the movement, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then Arthur decides he's going to break into a silent movie where Thomas Wayne's going to be at, and there's hundreds of policemen 
dozens of policemen, maybe hundreds of people protesting outside of it because Thomas Wayne's still calling people trash. There's all these dividers set up. There's a small riot, at which point Arthur just disappears underneath one cautionary block and sneaks in the side. Like, it's way too bleeming easy, isn't it? It is. And then we cut, and he's wearing a, like, usher's uniform in, like, no time. And we don't see how he gets it. He's just got it. And all the lights are on in the theater so we can see where Thomas Wayne is sat. Mm -hmm. Have you ever gone to a movie where they kept all the lights on while you watched it? I've picked up on this as well, but not to the extent that you had because it was my first time watching it through. But I have the note in here convenient uniform is convenient yeah. this is obviously about the usher's uniform it wasn't that convenient though, i picked up on that that was him. strange no, but it, obviously hadn't started to put together your theory yet yeah. in my head on the first watch through no you're fine it doesn't fit him it's it's definitely hanging it's, off it's him. it's really big and he, even with his hoodie on underneath because he takes it off later he does that's too. right and so he follows bruce wayne into the bathroom and says you're my dad you're my dad you're my dad uh bruce wayne goes sorry uh, thomas wayne goes no i'm not no i'm not no i'm not says your mother was crazy by the way you're adopted and punches him in the face so we can see all the things that make bruce wayne bruce uh not bruce wayne bruce that make arthur fleck a person are being taken from him. his employment his purpose his relationship with his mother his belief in who his father was is all that stuff and these are all being removed from him bit by bit by bit and he goes to Arkham. Again, theory about being all in his head. I reckon this all is. I I, I think I, it's got I, some I credence it, to it. Yeah. I thought it was a, a swap between the two, you know, yeah. reality and head. But, but now you say more about it, it. Yeah. And he goes to Arkham Asylum, and he's speaking to one of the clerks there as he gets the information. He looks around and goes, "How does someone end up in here? Do you, do you have to be a criminal?" And he goes, "Yeah." And I'm thinking. We haven't really talked about that flashback yet. No. And why are you saying this? Like, it's an aspiration almost. Like, you want to be here. Like, here is better. Why is here better? Because you get your own bed and you get food. <laughs> yeah, you get your food. It's all set up. And Medication. So he steals the, the, the documents, runs off. We find out he was abused as, as a child. His mother adopted him. And then he was found handcuffed to a radiator with bruises on his back. What happens at the start of the film? He gets beat up, and where do we see bruises? On his back. On his back. Um, and so he discovers some brain trauma. And at this point then, uh, the score is so massive, he comes home, he's in the elevator, we have a flashback to him talking to Sophie at the start of the film, and I think he decides, I want to see Sophie. And Georgia, this is where I want to get your take on it, because as he goes into Sophie's apartment, he's very cautious about going in and he's very tactile with all her possessions and the paintings and we see things through point of view shots from his perspective and surely if you were a boyfriend and a girlfriend this is not you wouldn't have this level of novelty of everything around you at this point it's not normal behavior yeah georgia at this point is your kind of meter starting to go off yeah it really was at this point i was i was confused at this point um I did not know what was going on. I would really quite like to watch the film again with a fresh set of eyes to be able to go, I know what's about to happen, let me watch it again, knowing what I know. Because I think the first time I watched it, it was very much a kind of surface level watch. Um, and I'd quite like to go back and have another 
the watch of it. Um, by this point, I'd pretty much stopped taking notes because I was just engrossed in the film. Yeah. Um, no, I I was going, that's really, really, really strange, especially when she starts talking and saying, you're in the wrong room, you live down there. And I wh- went, oh, okay, so this is not normal behaviour for two. No. And what's interesting at this point is that she's out of focus, he's in focus. And they never show them both in the same shot where they're both in focus to show Arthur's kind of distance from reality. He's that far removed that we can't even show them all in focus at the same time, which I thought was a really clever okay. choice by the cinematographer. <laughs> this is me going yeah, all like cool. film studies teacher, right? But I think that's so important in this thing. I'm going to try to power through the last few scenes just so we can have the big conversations. So uh, we get the Fight Club montage at this point where we see all the scenes with Sophie and how they really were with Sophie removed i really liked that in case you missed it and went by the way nothing with sophie was real except for the elevator that was it (laughs) she's not just being a bitch now she actually just wasn't there so he goes ahead he goes and visits his mom uh quickly kills her and then we find out he gets a phone call uh, around this time the the, murray franklin wants him to be on the show and he starts practicing for the show and becoming the joker he starts putting on the white face paint and he dyes his hair green and um Randall and Gary show up. Randall being the guy who gave him the gun at the start, who helps rat him out as part of the reason why he gets fired. And Gary, who's the little person who worked there and was kind of nice to Arthur. Not super nice, but he was all right. Probably the closest thing to nice that he's ever experienced. Yeah, closest thing he has to a friend, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, they come on over and basically Randall's there because he's worried that he's going to get out into the cops yeah, in some to capacity. Yeah, get their stories straight. And at which point he goes, I know you talked to the cops about me. Now, at any point of any of the scenes, did we see him talk about Randall to the cops? No. No, we saw him talk about Randall a little bit to his boss when he's getting fired. Yeah. But not to the cops. And my, my radar is going, never happened, never happened, never happened. Because we'd seen every instance between Arthur and the cops. And so at this point, Arthur quite... Well, I was going to say quite violently. I don't know how you do this not violently. <laughs> but he stabs Randall in, like, the throat or something? Yeah. And the, then he slams his head. No, first he stabs him in the throat. Then he stabs oh. him in the eye. Okay. Then he, then he I was taking notes. And then he slams his head into the thing, which, Liam, to me, is the second most violent scene I've seen this this year uh, after what happens in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. That was that was more violent. But this is close. More this is, violent? Is, oh, yeah, it was more violent. I remember, maybe we'll do that one day, but in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I remember I started looking around the cinema going, I just want to watch people as they react to this because it was that that crazy. Well, this was pretty graphic. It It went on Um, for like five times as long in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This was like proper kind of Game of Thrones level vibes. Yeah, uh, basically Quentin Tarantino sees that and goes, hold my beer. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Georgia, you're kind of squeamish. How did you take this? You kind of know how I took this because whilst I was watching it this morning, I was messaging you going, right, okay, so what do I need to be prepared for? Where's the gore? Um, So I kind of knew that a little bit of it was was coming. Um, But I'm all right mostly with that kind of stuff is okay. I... I was terrified of seeing like him slicing his own scars into his cheeks. That's yeah, what no, no, was no. going to scare me. I didn't want to see the, anything like that. So this I was okay with, which sound, makes me sound like a complete psychopath. <laughs> see, but, I feel bad. Um, no, I was all right with watching this this kind of gore. That's see, I feel bad because I remembered the slamming of the head. I forgot about the stabbing into the throat in the eye. So I'm sorry about that. I just remember there was a lot <laughs> That's of okay. That was that was okay. So, um, what I 
did find interesting though now thinking about it is that he gets the scissors out of that drawer what he stabs him with takes the scissors out of the drawer before he even knows who's at who is at the door which kind of really? threw me off now thinking yeah. about it oh, okay yeah so he obviously has intention before anything else and the fact that he stabs randall and not um do you say his, that his name was gary yeah um stabs randall i think is really quite important for him as a character in the rest of his development because he gary uh randall is the person that starts this yes if yeah Joker doesn't get given point. a gun yeah. I don't think he goes down the path that he goes down, or at least not as quickly as he does. And he doesn't um, ask for the gun. He just he just no, he's yeah, just he's given just it. Given yeah. it. Randall and I think sucks. that's the power trip yeah. that sends him over the edge. Um, you also know. So yeah, it's really interesting that he kills he's one of his first killings, as it were. Yeah, Liam. And do you also notice how when Gary has to get by him to get to the door, how he they leave it? so long that you feel uncomfortable for him yeah and <laughs> and i honestly thought he was gonna pretend to let him go and yeah then, then kill him i think i thought so that the first go, time as well, well yeah i genuinely thought he was gonna kill him especially when he comes up and he's like because gary's freaking out and he's going it's okay what, what are we worried about and he goes you can go and then he gets really close to him and then like walking phoenix like lunges out yeah. like, ah, <laughs> and scares him and then and then yeah. the the tragic joke i mean this is kind of like uh the dark knight meets in bruges because <laughs> gary can't reach the latch and has to ask ask him to let him out ask uh, arthur to let him out and arthur's white face paint has got flecks of blood still on That's it from disgusting. oh it was great and uh so he lets him out and then we cut to just when he oh, when okay. he does let him out, he kisses Gary on the head, and he, oh, he says, does too. "You're the only one who was ever nice to me." And this lets us know that Arthur's got a code. But yeah, but also it's just this really nice little. Well, I can't say really nice. Like it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like this weird tender moment. And again, it's just the complete juxtaposition with the the violence and graphic gore of the well same scene. And I think it also shows how easy it would have been for Arthur to have been saved. If people had just given him, because he's not even yeah. really nice, he just gives him like basic human dignity, and that's yeah. all it took. It's just people that treat him like a normal person. Yeah. He seems to respect to well, at least to the degree to not kill them. And then we cut, and it's now Arthur in full Joker costume and makeup coming down the stairs to rock and roll part two, which was brilliant, brilliant. I really wanted to get your take on this, Liam, because it was very controversial. I remember when it came out, people were really having their having their moment to talk about this. What's your take on that? My take on it was that was a strike of genius to use that piece of music. Um, only because everyone knows that that's Gary Glitter, the music. And everyone knows and feel uncomfortable with that music. So again, they were making you feel uncomfortable straight off the bat. So it wasn't them ignoring the legacy of that song. It was them using the legacy of that song to punctuate something that was happening. Yeah, it was accentuating the scene. Okay. And, and For me, I think they used that because of him being who he was. And, and they wanted you to feel uncomfortable with the music, with everything else around it. Yeah. And when you actually look into it, he don't get any royalties for that song. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that just way. So you know, just okay, so you yeah, know, fair enough. A lot of people are saying that why should he get paid money for his songs 
and being used. I've used it at a Super Bowl, I think, okay. a few years back. I will say and, in um, North America, it hasn't been, it doesn't carry the stigma for, uh, for the, the news about Gary Glitter's um, criminal charges and incarceration uh, doesn't seem well, to have made a cultural impact over there as it does here. No, because I don't think he was so big over there. No, over here he was, no, he? no one knows who wrote it. Oh, oh, okay. That makes a big difference then. It's just played at arenas where you go, duh, 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 duh. hey, it was always the hockey game, but no one really knew it. I think we all know it as a sports chant more than we know it as uh, a song. See, for me then, so why why I thought it was a stroke of genius, because I thought that was to make you feel uncomfortable. Well, it could be. I mean, if he weren't sent over in America, then why would they use the music if the Americans weren't going to get the same feeling I got from it? I don't know. I mean, it could be that they were really hyper aware and they don't know. Maybe they went, for those who do know, it's going to be really, really disconcerting. I'm going to yield to you as the music expert, buddy. So, Because I did. Because when I heard it, I went, oh, really? That's, and then I thought, oh, actually, that's, that, that do make you feel uncomfortable. And that's what they're trying to do here. I thought, that's great. But if other people don't know who Gary Glitter is over in America, they're not going to have the same feeling I had when I watched it and went, oh. You'll forgive me if I don't use it as the outro music for the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. No, I mean, I understand. I mean, yeah, no, no, I, I, I thought they used it to make you feel uncomfortable. I think if they, 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 they could have. If your audience isn't going to know that, then they're not going to have that feeling I had. And then we get to um, the cops see him as he goes down the stairs. They chase him. Um, basically, walking Phoenix, Arthur Fleck creates a disturbance on the train. But he starts to see everybody in the sheer numbers who are now wearing the, the clown masks. There's going to be a protest at City Hall or something along those lines downtown. And he ends up on the Murray Franklin show. And an interesting point at this part is we get our first real not um, fantasy face-to-face meeting between Arthur Fleck and Murray Franklin. And um, on the first day of filming together, De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix got into a massive argument <laughs> because they prepare in very different ways. De Niro likes to go over the scene line for line and do a proper read through. And then you're going to stand here. And then I'm going to stand there. And then I'm going to do this. Then you're going to do this. And Phoenix likes to just kind of shoot and let the <laughs> and, and let uh, shoot yeah. and just sort of let what happens organically happen. And so they're two, and they had a giant blow up. And apparently, all their distaste for each other is strictly professional. They never want to work together again. <laughs> but Walking Phoenix still calls De Niro his favorite actor. But it was really interesting. I wonder if that helped the chemistry on stage. Moreover, because when they did the read through, apparently Walking Phoenix just like mumbled all his lines and was like a petulant child being forced to do this. <laughs> and knowing Walking Phoenix and his legacy, because he's done some strange stuff. Like, I don't know, Liam, if you ever saw him on the Letterman show where he purposely came out like in character, but no one knew he was in character. He was like doing like a documentary. I heard about it, but I hadn't ever seen it. He comes out with like a giant beard and glasses and like mumbles his way through the interview and purposely tries to agitate everybody. And we all thought he'd have like a Britney Spears moment. But it turns out he was filming this like long form documentary about his life for like a year and a half. And went just like playing everybody. So like Walking Phoenix is this level of like both creative and kind of messed up. So I wonder if he... He sounds like Andy Colton, doesn't he? He does a little bit. So I wonder if he almost creates this animosity between him and De Niro so that that scene turns super, 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 um, you know, agitated and like tense at the end and plays towards the performance. So I have written down in my notes here that when he's in Joker costume and when he's uh, on the set of the Murray Franklin show, I have in my notes that he reminds me a lot of his mother. 
Did anybody else pick up on a feminine energy from Joker at all during this part? Yeah. He's kind of got like a... He's got a bit of an affected voice. He does have an affected voice, which... And he starts talking about, you know, um, people should treat each other better and, and, and show humanity. And people aren't civil anymore, he says. And it sounds like something out of his mother's speeches and his letters, her letters. Does he then turn around and go, oh, Thomas Wayne's on TV. Yeah, that's true. I feel like I it was interesting. You know when um, he goes in and he kisses the lady um, when he fully sits down? Oh, that's true. The doctor, yeah, yeah. When you go back and think about how he was with, what was her name again? Sophie, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's the same move, um, isn't it? How, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he feels confident, this is what he does. It's It's a repetition of a cycle. Yeah. That's what I related it to when I watched him do that and with so, her on the Murray Franklin show. And so he goes on and he bombs with a joke and then he confesses to killing the three douchebags earlier in the film. And Murray asks him, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to start a movement? And he goes, do I look like the kind of guy to start a movement? And it sounded very similar to me, George. I don't know what you thought about last week. Do I look like the kind of person who has a plan? Do I look the kind of guy with a plan? <laughs> Yeah. And it was a few moments I where pick up on that. they went, we're not going to shy away from the Dark Knight comparisons. In fact, we're going to lean into them a little bit. There was a few. There was a few. And so uh, there's a speech about society and he talks about uh, nobody out there. Do you think Thomas Wayne, those kinds of people give a shit about me? And that's the same speech in a sense that was said by his psychiatrist earlier in the movie when she says that their funding's been cut. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. And then yeah. he has one last joke. What do you do when you take a a um, mental, I don't know if it's wrong, but like a mentally ill loner with a society that rejects him and tosses him aside? You get what you deserve. I've cut out a word there. And then he shoots him in the head in this glorious two shot. And his brains go all over the wall. And everybody screams. He, I didn't see it coming either. He okay. shoots him twice more. Georgia, how did you take this? Uh, so I accidentally spoiled that bit for myself. Oh. Looking on IMDb whilst I was watching the film. <laughs> that is the best oh. bit. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I think the fact that I knew it was coming helped me understand that scene beforehand a little bit better. Probably in the way you guys have now watched it a second time through. Um, it did mean I didn't get it as a surprise, but I did get it as a, okay, I know what this is about to do so i can then kind of process the information of what he's saying here in a different way after he's um shot murray they have this kind of zoom in on on joker laughing um but i noticed that this time it's sort of a suppressed laugh and then a little bit of a snigger and it's not like the laughs he's had throughout the rest of the film and i think this is actually the first time that we see a genuine laugh from joker rather than one caused by his condition yeah, it's true, and he doesn't have a lot of freedom. He goes there knowing he's pretty much going to end up in jail or the asylum or dead. I think he has this freedom of not having to pretend he's happy anymore. I think that's why he seems so relaxed, yeah, because he has no – he sees his life going one way, so he's just, like, got so much more freedom with it. He's like, I've just done this horrific thing on film, on camera, caught red-handed, and I don't care. And that happens. He grabs the camera. He starts to make a speech, and he's about to say that's life, and they cut him off. And that seemed very similar to The Dark Knight uh, when he grabs the camera in the self-made shots. He goes outside. uh, He's been arrested. He's in the cop car. And we get him through the window of the cop car. But this time, 
it's a happy face as he's looking out because he sees that Gotham is burning. And it was very reminiscent to me, Liam, of that shot from The Dark Knight where he's in the back of the cop car after being freed. First thing I thought of when I saw it, I was like, yes, that is a good homage. Um, so he's freed by an ambulance that hits the cop car outside the same porn cinema we saw at the start of the film. And just because Batman's got a Batman, uh, we get Thomas and Bruce Wayne and Martha Wayne going outside and Thomas and Martha get killed. Bruce lives. So that starts up the way it's supposed to be. Uh, We get, isn't it beautiful? And then the Joker takes the blood from his face, makes a smile, stands in in the glory of his followers. And we cut to him in a mental institution, uh, Arkham Asylum, I guess. Uh, We're not told how he was arrested. We're not told how he ended up there. And we see that he's being interviewed by a black therapist of about the same age as the first one, different actress. And he's laughing. She goes, what's so funny? He goes, you wouldn't get it. And then we cut to him walking out. He's leaving a trail of red footprints on the white floor as he disappears into a brilliant display of blinding white light. And that's our film. But can I just say, on the cinema release, that wasn't blind and white light. Was it? I, I thought I remembered white light, man. I rem- Oh, see, I remember him running back and forth. He does run back and forth. I did see that, yeah. But that was more clear at the cinema than it was on the DVD. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah, because it was very, very white light. And I thought back to that white light we saw earlier when he leaves the uh, Chuckles factory, whatever it's called. Yeah. So let's just quickly kind of go. So you you know my theory. I think it's all in his head. I might even argue argue he was never – he was never – out of the asylum. The whole film takes place yeah. in his head while he's in the asylum. Or everything you've said makes sense to me. Or you go down a different thing and you go, he kills his mom. Everything else kind of doesn't happen. He's just some guy who was abused by his mother, kills her. That's why he's in there. Everything else is a narrative he's created around that around that story. Mm-hmm. But he's just killed his mom, and this is the sort of thing he's come up with to sort of rationalize it. Because he seems to have these weird sexual uh, maternal relationships with every woman he meets for the most part and it's kind of weird I feel like I need to watch it a third time now um, so let's just go around and let's ask the uh, usual questions uh, just thoughts did we like Joker no no st- still no huh um, I think I'm going to appreciate it more the more I watch it okay because I think the reason I liked um, Heath Ledger's version was because it was quite anarchic yep and comic book where his is more depression fall uh, a guy who's just got no breaks it was just pure darkness and I don't like darkness without humour okay and uh, and I only enjoyed the last 10 minutes when he became the Joker um, second time I watched it I liked it a bit more and understood it a bit more, but still, I didn't. Still, a bit dark for me. Okay. I think I'll. In, I think I'll enjoy the second sequel if they do one. Oh, if they do a follow one, yeah. yeah. And that's the that's the that's yeah. the, the the tricky bit, uh, Ellie. Yeah. Um, I really really love this film. Um, so I I enjoyed it the first time I watched it at the cinema. Um, but this second watch round with kind of being able to appreciate more of the actual 
film style as well. I really enjoyed watching it again today. Um, and yeah, I, I like both The Dark Knight and and this one, but I'm guessing you're going to ask us for some comp- comparisons in a minute anyway. I will. Uh, Georgia? I really enjoyed it. Um, I think as someone who does not like Batman, um, this film was something that gives me no Batman universe <laughs> with baby <laughs> Batman. Um, but you already said you liked Batman as as Bruce Wayne. Yeah, you, you just like, didn't like, you him like as Bruce Batman. Wayne, you just like Batman. <laughs> exactly, no Batman, but the Joker, um, which I really enjoyed. I also just when we were talking a few minutes ago about how um, uh, Gary was the only person who was nice to him, it just triggered in my brain that also. The only other person that's relatively nice to him is Sophie. And the t- thing that those two have in common is they are minorities. One is a dwarf mm. and the other is a single black mum. And you kind of go, so where's this? What is this saying about the world that the Joker lives in? Is it that you have to be a bit different to fit in with the crowd that is also a bit different yeah i mean the only people that relate to him are all people that are on the fringe um, yeah, yeah yeah so none of them are your typical person and the people that they're fighting against are the majority and it's just a really interesting look on well not even the majority what but like this story is trying to tell us not because we see how many people don the mask it's not even the majority but it is the rich white one percent isn't it yes white yeah, yeah, yeah. waspy um wealthy people who to use thomas wayne's line made something out of their life without any consideration of the privilege or that everybody else it's that line you know do you think thomas wayne would care if he saw someone like me he wouldn't care and yeah yeah um so uh should i say favorite i mean we usually go favorite character um besides arthur anybody have a favorite character yeah gary gary okay I mean, I suppose I would say Gary, but I mean, I wouldn't really say he was like a, he wasn't really enough of a character in this film, I wouldn't say, but none of the characters, because it's such a gritty film, it's, no one really causes you to warm to them. Also because everybody fights Arthur. Everybody's oppressing Arthur. I mean, even Murray Franklin's a jerk. You know, I, I mean, don't like, I don't like even, what's and the, even his own mum. Even his mum, even Mark Maron from Glow, who was a cameo in this. George, I'm sure you noticed Mark Maron. I can't say I did, but that's because I've not watched Glow in a while. Remind oh, me who he is. He's the guy who was like a stagehand saying, don't give this guy a platform. Don't let him on the show. Not like that. Not with the Joker makeup. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Sorry, but, no, I missed that. Yeah, but even him. So I'm just going, there wasn't another singular character that I really cared. Sophie by default, but the Sophie I liked was the Sophie in his imagination. Yeah, I yeah, think so. Yeah, that's where, that's where my favorite character would go, other than the Joker would go to imaginary Sophie. I guess not strictly imaginary Sophie because she's nice to him in the lift as well. So and she's yeah. nice, but to we him don't in... get to see much else of her, do we? So if yeah. we assume that the scene where she's telling him that he's in the wrong apartment is real as well, then she does show him kindness there as well because she says, "Do you want me to call someone? Is your mum home?" But we don't get enough of that Sophie. And her fate is left ambiguous uh, on purpose. Uh, Todd Phillips said there was another scene they shot which would have made clear that she lives. And they cut that so you don't know if he kills her or not when he leaves the apartment. Because he just mm. we just cut to him outside the apartment. And another follow-up, the girl who he saves on the train when he shoots the douchebags 
is uh, she shows up with the Joker mask on in a in a later scene mm. to show that she joins the movement. Interesting. So there's this idea about approval, about sort of overthrowing the system. Um, anybody want to talk about their favorite bit from the film? My favorite bit were the steps. The steps? Yeah, the steps are iconic. I think it's one of those things. Yeah. Sorry, Ellie, you were saying? Um, I don't think I really have sort of like a favorite scene. I really like all of it. But um, I suppose my favorite aspect of it, especially having watched it a second time, is is all that juxtaposition. I know I've used that word so many times yeah. during this podcast. But just the, you know, cuts from light to dark and happy to sad and shocking to very comforting and well, not really comforting to the audience, but, you know, should be comforting were it not for the fact you've just had someone's head blown off or something yeah. in the previous scene. Liam, anything? I mean, you don't seem to be that big on this one, but anything that, that sort of stood out for you? Yeah, well, I'm not big on it, not because of the the way the story's told. It's just the way I don't like... I love the cinematography of it. Yeah. I love how it's framed. I love how it's... It is brilliant to watch for that. There's even that shot, I don't know if you um, caught it, it's just the train going into Gotham. It's just a train. It's just a train moving. And I went, look at how gorgeous that shot is. And it's just a train. Yeah. It was beautifully shot. I, I, I guy, can't argue that at That all. guy got robbed. That guy got robbed of an Oscar. Whoever won, I'm sure, didn't deserve it. <laughs> no. No. Um, I think maybe in a few years, after a few more watches, I might warm to it a bit more. Oh, this is Ellie's um, rule of seven watches, right? Hey, it's only yeah. three. This is Ellie's gimmick you're stealing. You know that, right? She's going to start saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but you feel that maybe if you watch it a few more times, you'll appreciate the nuances of it more maybe i think yeah well the thing is for me you know me i i, I, saw, I try and see the good in everybody you do and and i didn't like seeing someone being kicked and no. constantly it, kicked. it's 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 a hard yeah. watch at times yeah it's it, it was and that's why i don't like the movie okay as a whole i don't like seeing someone kicked yeah but when you say something in his head it makes things a little well, bit more different that's my theory anyway yeah yeah, I like that theory. Thank I like you. it. I like <laughs> Georgia. I'm not sure if I have a favourite. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure if I have a favourite bit. bit or I element I or... To, I, yeah, I think I need to watch it again just because it's so long and so much happens in it. Okay. Um, I'd like to watch it again, kind of get the take on it. But um, just from first take, I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoy the message it seems to spread. I enjoy the political sides of it. I think it's really interesting. I really like it as a prequel to the Joker that we get in Dark Knight. Oh, okay. I think that works. I oh. really like I really like that as a setup for that, which would be my argument. My face is very scrunched up, but please keep going. <laughs> you like it as, okay. as you, no, um, no, please. I mean, but by all means, I'm, I'm dead serious. Please, please keep going. So you, you, you like it as a setup for the Heath Ledger version. I do. Okay. Yeah, no, I it's a very very plausible version of who we see in the dark night where he's come from because we don't get backstory for um the joker and again like you said at the beginning that's part of what some people were worried this film would take away but i don't think it takes anything away i think it adds to the absolute chaos we get to see in dark night and you go so what what caused that and you get society caused that so what is he doing in the dark night he's taking aspects of society and turning them into chaos okay. and like like he's lived through for the rest of his life he's just giving a bit a little bit back of what he experienced um i think that's an interesting take on it 
Um, I think I think I think also Georgia. Um, you don't have the same take as me and Gooder because we come from a generation who knows the Joker as being becoming the Joker through falling in a vat of chemicals caused by Batman. So we we see different aspects to that. We don't see our backstory is different to the backstory you have now been given with yeah. Joker in this movie. Yeah, no, although, although, although Heath Ledger's Joker isn't that either. No, exactly. And that's yeah. different. It, I, I don't know. I see Heath Ledger's Joker completely different to this Joker. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't see them as a comparable one. I don't, I don't. So I agree, Liam. Um, I think the the Joker in Dark Knight is a very intelligent um, man who's Highly obviously got. Well, I mean, we Highly we talked last time because I said I said he's uh, he's clearly crazy, and and uh, you guys were like, uh, is he though? Um, I think yeah. there's no argument that Arthur is completely crazy. <sighs> well, Arthur's not just crazy. I mean, um, Arthur's got brain damage. He's got, he's got a lot of very diverse issues, hasn't he? Yeah. And they all affect him in lots of different ways, whereas the um, Heath Ledger version is a little bit more... What's the word I'm looking for? Calculated? Um, no, that's... I mean, it's just a bit more... You could argue it either way. He's got an agenda. I mean, you could argue... The, the opposite is uh, Heath Ledger's Joker might not have a plan, but he's definitely trying to start a movement. Yeah. Which is what Flick says he's not. Now, Flick, I don't think Flick has a plan or a movement. He's just kind of, he is literal and, literally an act of chaos, to, to make yeah. your point, Georgia. Not chaos in society, just chaos in himself. I think my mm. only comeback would be that we first, it's not until the last, I guess, 20 minutes of the film where we actually meet the Joker yeah. as he is in his full form. And this is the irony. Um, and this is also... This is also where we see and understand that he's stopped taking his medication. Yeah, and he feels and a lot better now. Those sorts of medications can dull the mind. They can do all sorts of things. So you kind of go, so a man who's now off these medications, who's free now to do whatever he wants without consequences, because he's obviously now above the law, as it were, because he has done lots of different bits and pieces. You go, people can transform in those ways. And I think it's a really interesting path that he could take obviously it's a lot further down the time frame if you are if you were to consider it this has got to be at least 20 years later because batman is a fully grown adult man oh if it's um, like the batman in, that we see in the the nolans it's 30 years exactly yeah. so is there's definitely a time jump and i'm aware it's not the same person because the time frames don't match up no it's an interesting way to see yeah. maybe not exactly the character of Arthur Fleck that you get in this version, but a back, a backstory of mental abuse and illness, I think is really Ill- interesting to give the Joker as a whole and would work for the Heath Ledger Joker, if not exactly the same um, illnesses and things that we see with um, this film. I, well, we've talked about Heath Ledger, not Heath Ledger, geez, look what's happening now, about Joaquin Phoenix's laugh as the Joker. And I absolutely hated it. I hated it. It drove me bonkers. You could argue it's supposed to irritate you and annoy you, but I think it did, like, it made me want to, like, detach from the film, though. That was the problem. Every time he Same laughed, I was just like, I don't want to hear this. Not knowing if it's empathizing no. or going, oh, you're good because you're. I just went, I just don't like that sound. Same. I agree. I didn't have that problem, actually. I didn't find it 
to be irritating above what it should oh, have been. It. But again, it's, it's my first time watching it, so maybe that builds up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I I'm with you there, Georgia. I I don't find it. I mean, I I find it uncomfortable. Obviously, it's it's supposed to be, but it's more the duration of it and how often it happens that and the and the complete inappropriateness of the situation when yeah. it when it arises that makes me feel uncomfortable and i think that's how the film's supposed to make you feel and i think that's what makes it such an interesting watch so we've talked around the issue for well over an hour hour and a half now um the question i posed at the start was he won an academy award for best actor is this the best portrayal of a joker ever now i asked alexa earlier and i kid you not i did this I said, Alexa, who is the best actor to ever play the Joker? And Alexa told me the answer is Jared Leto. So I'm going to ask you <laughs> the same question. If you have an Alexa, try it out because you'll be surprised, I think. It says Jared Leto. Uh, Ellie, uh, at the end of the day, who did you prefer? Was it Ledger or was it Phoenix? Don't come to me first. Come to you first. I, I don't know. Okay, I one- still can't decide. I think they're such completely different portrayals of... Well, it's kind of a different character, whether it's, you know, whether you think that the it chronologically works, that they could be the same person or not. Um, they're just two different, really interesting characters, and I really enjoy both of them. So I, I just, I can't answer. All right, so Ellie chickens out. Liam, I think I know your answer. Okay, no, right. I really enjoyed him as the Joker in the last 10 minutes. Fair. Um, but... Ledger is my favorite all time because when I was a kid and I thought of the Joker, he played it how I see it. Yep, and that's just my take on it. Absolutely. And I, when when they said about Ledger playing him, I was like, no way. Yeah. But he changed my mind. Yeah, absolutely. He blew my mind. Um. So yeah, he's my favorite hands down. Georgia, I think I'm probably one of the odd ones out in this situation where I didn't have much of an experience with Batman or the Joker or anything like that before I reached adulthood. So I don't have much of a nostalgia with any of these characters at all, which puts me in a position to be kind of able to go um, to have different perspectives from you guys. But um, where I would sit with it would be that I really, really, really enjoy Heath Ledger's Joker. I think he's absolutely incredible. And that character, I adore. I really enjoy Walking Phoenix as the Joker, though. I think he's incredible. I think, like Liam saying, or Ellie said, they are very, very different. Um, I think they probably could transition one into the other, but they are very different characters at the moment as they stand. Um, unfortunately for me, I think I get enough of Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight I mean, it's not his, it is his film, but it's, he's part of another film. Whereas we get the Joker that we get in um, the most recent one, it is his film. It's all around him. I don't think there's any scene that doesn't have him in. Okay. Obviously that plays into your theory of him being, it all being in his head. Sure. Um, but I would have loved to have seen more of Heath Ledger's Joker. And for the moment, I'm going with him being my favourite Joker. I would Sorry, deserve who is the him? right to... Uh, who is him which one is it is it is it phoenix is that what you're saying no um so heath ledger is my favorite joker at the moment i reserve the right however change that if they do bring out a sequel to the joker um because i think if i see more of the joker version of walking phoenix i may slip into that one i hadn't considered what you had said about uh psychic distance we never leave arthur's side in the whole film and I hadn't actually thought about that, but it's true. We, we don't leave his side the whole film. 
And I think maybe that's why it's so it can be so wearing, as as, as Liam kind of referred to. It just grates and wears you down. Um, yeah. I think uh, elements of what I'm just going to steal. People have said, of course, the correct answer, of course, is that well, um, the Dark Knight is the Joker's film. Joker is Arthur Flack's film. So the yeah. question was, who is the who is the better Joker? And the question is, without without any hesitation, is Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger's, uh, the, as Chris Nolan said, is the finished product the minute you meet him. And he's an agent of chaos. And he goes toe-to-toe with Batman and makes Batman question everything he's done. This version of Arthur Flack lucks and stumbles his way through a bunch of horrible happenstances to him and briefly gets a moment where he shoots someone. Can I just clarify the question mm. then? Are we are we asking whether um, which actor played... Which actor did a better acting job, or are we asking which version of the character we prefer? Well, I'm going to answer the same for both. So, but if you if you need to distinguish that, that's fine. I, I definitely prefer. The, I said, who is the best Joker? So the best Joker is Heath Ledger to me. Yeah, I definitely prefer Heath Ledger's Joker as like the Joker. But I think that Joaquin Phoenix did a fantastic job in his acting yeah, throughout I think, the... I think we've all sat here and gone, he's been film. really, really good. He deserves this Academy Award. Is there anybody else who wants to take it away from him? No. No, no not at all. I think he deserves it. Yeah, no, but the question is yeah. just, it's going to happen. You can make a comparison every day. Who is it? Is it Ledger? Is it Phoenix? And I go, Ledger. I'm on Team Team Dark Knight. So that's that. Uh, so time for ratings. Time for ratings. Liam, we'll, we'll ask you in a second. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll ask our, uh, our esteemed perma-guests, as it seems to be. Uh, Ellie, what was your view on the dark, not Dark Knight, geez, on, on not Frozen, Joker. <laughs> wow. Um, as in, what would I give it out of 10? Out of 10. Um, I think I would give this one a 9.5. 9 point? Is that your highest rating you've given so it far? It is. Jeez. So while I'm not sure where I sit on this whole which, which Joker was better, um, I think I preferred what? this film. You preferred this film to the Dark Knight? Yes. Wow. Whoa. I think we're going to see a repeat of that here. Georgia, what do you think? Because you gave The Dark Knight six and a half, if I recall. Yes, I gave The Dark Knight six and a half, but I gave The Joker in The Dark Knight nine and a half. Yes, but... So <laughs> I think there's a, there's a comparison there happening as well. To quote Batman, so, answer the question. <laughs> um, I'm going to give Joker, the film that we've just watched, a... Feels Eight like you're making this up. Eight and a half. <laughs> Eight and a half. Okay, good. Wow. Okay, so you rated this as a high, as a better film as well. So the ladies seem to prefer the um the, the Todd Phillips film. Liam, what about you? I think I know where you're going on this. The first hour and fifty minutes of it, I give it a seven. The last ten minutes of it, I give it a nine. Okay. <laughs> so what does that come out to in the wash, buddy? Seven and a half. Seven and a half. Okay, fair enough. And, yeah. and think about it, uh, what did I give? I gave Dark Knight nine and a half, right? Yeah. Uh, I really liked Joker, but the things that I like about it are also some of my biggest problems with it. And in a, in a movie where we can't trust moments of the film, we can't trust any of the film. And if we can't trust any of the film, what the heck did I watch? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I love it, but in the same part, did it, does, it, does it matter? Does it mean anything? I don't know. It's our longest podcast by a mile. It was fun to talk about. But I don't know if I have any more answers than I just have questions. 
So I, I, I liked it a lot, though. Walking Phoenix is great, and the cinematography and score are outstanding. So I'm gonna go eight. I'm gonna go. Eight, I'm gonna go eight and a half on mine. Eight and a half. Okay. So Liam, you went seven and a half. I went eight and a half. That gives it sixteen. So that slides it, uh, I believe, below Back to the Future and just below In Bruges, but ahead of Amelie. Yeah. So that's kind of where we sit in the grand scheme yeah. of things. So that's kind of where we fit it on the best film ever. Dark Knight still retains its title with a healthy, I think it was 18 and a half points. So yeah. uh, we're in good shape. So as far as the official podcast line, The Dark Knight is a better film than Joker, but it was a conversation I think well worth having and that leads us to uh we could do best role ever and all that stuff i think we're way heavy as it is so i think it's good if we just move on but for let's just talk really briefly joaquin phoenix best role ever liam um i liked him in gladiator gladiator and walk the line i think is the other big one you have to consider yeah yeah Depends what you want from Joaquin Phoenix. Is he better as the supporting actor or is he better as the lead? I always think he's better as a supporting actor. Yeah. I think, even though he won the Oscar for this, I think I go Gladiator. Yeah. Another film in which yeah. he's kind of inappropriate with family members, come to think of it. Mm. That's weird. That's weird, isn't it? And so let's talk about next film ever because it's Ellie's turn to pick and Ellie... Uh, you've gone through our short list of films that we have at our physical disposal, either uh, at, at one of our two satellite locations. And which one have you chosen for next film ever? Uh, so I'm going for one that I've actually wanted to see for quite a while. Um, and that is The Theory of Everything. The Theory of Everything. So I'm going to have to make sure my physical copy makes its way to, to Kings Lynn, to Liam. To make sure that uh, he can watch that after we're done with it. So, uh, The Theory of Everything. Uh, George, I think it's available on Netflix or Prime. I think it might be on Prime, but... I think it's available on that. It's definitely on one of them. So, Theory of Everything. Uh, I, I didn't know for sure which way it was going. So, I'm, I'm. it's one I've wanted to see. It's one that if I wasn't being... Uh, someone hadn't suggested it, I don't know if I would have sat down and watched it anytime soon. So, I'm looking forward to that. Any other early I thoughts? Because Eddie read... We sort of have criteria about what films can qualify. And on its own, Theory Everything really doesn't do it, except for Eddie Redmayne wins Best Actor for it. And that's what gets it in the conversation. So, uh, Georgia, you like Eddie Redmayne, don't you? I do like Eddie Redmayne. I have not seen this film, though, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, I hear he is a fantastic beast, and now you know where to find him. <laughs> wow. I absolutely do. <laughs> it's the only time you ever hear Eddie Redmayne referred to as a fantastic beast. <laughs> Excuse me, Eddie Redmayne is a fantastic. Beast. Is he now? <laughs> yeah. Beast suggests like you know, like like a, a sense of massiveness, and don't go there. <laughs> a sense of a sense of like you know physical presence, and Eddie Redmayne's just like, oh, it's little Eddie Redmayne. Oh, look, he tries. We had a similar conversation that last week about him in uh, yes. Les Mis yeah, as watch well. Yeah, watched Les Mis, and I wasn't really the biggest fan of Eddie Redmayne. Actually, to be honest with you... Do not judge Eddie Redmayne by his performance in Les Mis, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go here with you on this, George. Ready for this? I have yet to see an Eddie Redmayne film that I've... Eddie Redmayne performance that I have liked. So, so we'll see. The thing. I don't particularly like him as an actor. Oh. <laughs> I just like him as a person. He's just pretty, is he? Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, pretty much. With Although, that in mind. So is Tom Holland, but that's a different discussion altogether. So, 
let's go ahead. We'll put a bow on this one and call this one done. So <laughs> we'll go around the table just to sign off for best film ever. My name is Ian. And my name is Liam. I'm Ellie. And I've been Georgia. And people don't forget always that we live in a society. And if you listen to best film ever, you get what you deserve. Thanks a lot. <laughs>